Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 26 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to have renowned aerospace and space historian Roger Launius as my special guest. For 12 years, Launius served as NASA's chief historian before moving on to the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. There, he served most recently as associate director for collections and curatorial affairs, a prolific author of both books and articles. Most recently, Launius authored the Smithsonian History of Space Exploration, From the Ancient World to the Extraterrestrial Future, published by Smithsonian Books. Apollo's Legacy, The Space Race in Perspective, also from Smithsonian, and Reaching for the Moon, A Short History of the Space Race, from Yale University Press. Launius is a recipient of both NASA's Exceptional Service Medal and his Exceptional Achievement Medal and is a fellow of the American Astronautical Society. He is now based in Alabama, where he is principal at Launius Historical Services. But today we'll be discussing the early era of robotic planetary exploration, particularly NASA's and the Soviet Union's robotic exploration of the Moon, Venus, Mercury, and Mars. Launius joins us from Auburn in Alabama. Roger, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. First off, take us back to the end of World War II and the political climate under the Truman administration around 1946. <laughs> I, know, I know that's a long way back, but uh, when it came to harnessing Germany's captured V-2 rockets for civilian or military purposes, did the powers that be here in the U.S. have an idea about whether these rockets would be used for peaceful purposes or was it all about military options from the get-go? Well, the powers that be, uh, you know, they, they responded to this in ways that reflected their particular agenda. So the folks in the War Department clearly thought that these were weapons and that they were going to explode them for those purposes. Uh, people in other organizations, especially scientific organizations, thought that they could use them for, for those kinds of purposes. What we found, however, was there was a merger of, of these two uh, concepts. They worked very well together. The military wanted to build and fly rockets to advance the cause of ballistic missile technology. And that was really all about uh, the early Cold War environment and being able to uh, best the Soviet Union. So that, that's a military purpose. But while they're doing tests, they also have a payload capability to take something into space. So the scientists persuaded, and from a very early era on, uh, they had set up a joint committee between scientists and engineers and the military to sort of come up with a way in which they might be able to maximize all these usages. So every time a rocket test took place, there were instruments aboard that test uh, that would be useful for scientific purposes. And that's what they did. V2s that were flown out of White Sands and ultimately the bumper project, which had a V2 first stage that was flown out of, uh, out of, out of Cape Canaveral. Uh, you know, they all had, had instruments aboard, scientific equipment of various types that could take measurements. And so as uh, Michael Neufeld notes in his book, Space Flight, a 1946 V-2 flight launched from White Sands captured the first images of the sun's ultraviolet spectrum at wavelengths blocked by Earth's atmosphere. Sounding rockets from the late 40s and 50s, although the V-2 was not technically a sounding rocket, also began taking X-ray measurements of the sun and even the cosmos itself from sore orbit, did they not? Oh, they did, certainly. Uh, and, and they did lots of other things even beyond that sort of, uh, of activity. There's cosmic ray research. Uh, there's uh, what is the upper atmosphere like, the ionosphere? How, can, how can we measure that, understand it, and so forth? Uh, and there have been a lot of efforts even pre-war to try to learn more about that. They realized that they could get up a, a, a 100 miles or so 
ultimately more than 200 miles. And then they could take pictures of the Earth. And so the first images of Earth come from V2 rockets that are flown out of White Sands. And, uh, and some of them are spectacular. They created mosaics of, of the whole southwestern part of the United States, Mexico, the, the, the Gulf of Mexico, and so on, uh, as they were undertaking this activity. They looked at cloud patterns. This was the first instance in which scientists, mostly with the Weather Bureau, began to realize that they could use these... Uh, these rockets uh, and ultimately use them to put satellites into orbit that can look at the cloud cover, can see storms and how they are forming and where they are going, things of that nature. And that was another piece of this technological and scientific puzzle. So the Cold War itself was kind of already in effect by the late 40s during these V2 tests. Uh, clearly the Cold War is in place. Okay. Um, yeah, You know, 1945, uh, there is... Uh, differences of opinion about how they're going to govern Germany between the four powers that are uh, occupying it. By 1946, there is uh, a, a real flashpoint in Berlin as the four powers have divided the city into sectors. 1948, of course, is the, is the Berlin blockade in which the Soviet Union closed all of the capabilities that um, that the Allies had in the West to resupply this, those sectors in Berlin uh, of, of food, clothing, anything else that they needed, especially fuel, I might add. And the Berlin airlift is a direct result of that in 1948 and 1949. So, the, so, so uh, the, it's well in place by then. Okay, so the Cold War basically started when the World War II ended, uh, uh, even though... Uh, Almost simultaneously, yeah. Okay, so how did the uh, the early Cold War spur this early robotic spacecraft development, or did it? The, the, the Cold War in the 1940s spurred technological advances. The Americans realized that they had a winning weapon with the atomic bomb, and uh, they had used it in 1945 at Hiroshima and Nagasaki against the Japanese. It scared the living daylights out of everybody else in the world, as well it should, and, and the response to that was uh, the Americans said, okay, we've got this, we can put it on bombers, but we can also put it on missiles. And it may be a number of years before there is the real capability to send uh, ballistic missiles half a world away and to, to blow up Moscow from a launch in the U.S. But nonetheless, people are thinking about that 45, 46, 47 doesn't come to fruition for a number of years. There were studies done in the early, or I'm sorry, in the mid-1940s, in which um, uh, people who looked at this, the technologists who really understood the problem, said we're 10 years away from having a, an acceptable ballistic missile. But if we don't get started on it, we'll be farther away than that. And so they began working at that point. A decade later, the Soviets uh, successfully launched Sputnik 1 in October of 1957. So this may be an unfair question because from what you've just said, but uh, what happened during that decade between the V2s and Sputnik? Did the U.S. Uh, kind of fall down on the job in terms of the needed technology to be first in space? You know, there's a there's a lot of ways that you can sort of look at that. There there are those who have who have uh, criticized the Truman administration for not pushing as hard as he might have to build an effective ballistic missile. And there's some reason in which you can, you can make that case. Uh, but I should also add that Truman did not push as hard as he might have otherwise because the Americans had the advantage at the time. The Russians did not have an atomic bomb. The Americans did have bombers. Uh, and nuclear weapons uh, associated with those. There's also this consensus among the scientific and technological elite that it's going to take 10 years no matter what. So you're sort of on a 10-year you know, timeline to try to get this accomplished, which is about what happened. Could, he have worked, could they have pushed a little harder? Could they spend a little mo more money on it? Maybe. But there's also, and there's another piece of this that's really important, that scientists led by... Einstein and a variety of other very senior people in, in physics who said we really need to figure out a way to control this so that we don't use this nuclear power as a weapon. Uh, 
And there was a concerted effort in 1945-46 into the first part of 47 through the UN to establish an international uh, control mechanism to ensure that nobody had nuclear weapons. And there were people inside the Truman administration who wanted that as well. So if, if that's what's going to happen, you're ultimately not going to develop these things anyway. Why push very hard for the, for the delivery mechanism of a ballistic missile to carry a nuclear warhead? That all changed with Eisenhower. When he walked in the door, the first thing he said was, I, I want this. He made it a very high priority. It, it's within just a very short period of time thereafter that, that um, the development of the Atlas ballistic missile gets the highest priority inside the Department of Defense, and they began moving very quickly for that. So we tend to think of uh, of Truman as a wartime president, but he did uh, he was elected to a full term, surprisingly in 1948, and he served until uh, Eisenhower was elected and then inaugurated in early 1953. Uh, Truman did uh, kind of uh, oversee the first part of the of the Cold War and and this missile development, as you just said. So um, how soon after Sputnik? Uh, fast forward a bit. Did NASA start thinking about sending a spacecraft on a lunar flyby? Well, uh, NASA didn't exist at the time of Sputnik. Uh, there is no organization in the federal government that has responsibility for space exploration until 1958. That's after Sputnik. A few months later, um, after the Sputnik crisis of that October of 1957, Sputnik 2 in November of 57, the failure of American efforts in December of 57, all leads in the spring of 1958 to the desire to create a separate space agency in the federal government. Eisenhower, by the way, opposed that. He didn't like the idea. The way he phrased it was, why do we create a permanent bureaucracy to solve a short-term problem? He sort of had a point there. But Nonetheless, um, what resulted was the passage of the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958, which ultimately was only signed into law in July of 1958. So the middle part of, of the year, and NASA was stood up and operational on the 1st of October of 1958. So at the time of Sputnik, there's no NASA out there saying we should do anything. But there, there are advocates, but there was some of whom... I'm sorry, but there Become was a part of NASA. There was NACA, uh, and my memory. The, the, the NACA had responsibility for aeronautical research, but not uh, not for space research at that point. Not really. They worked. Uh, they had some uh, people who were involved in, in in guided missile tests to sort of do guidance and control and aerodynamics, and there was some work along those lines. And 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 the NACA was was involved with the with the Air Force on the X-15 program which is as close as you can come to a human spaceflight vehicle without actually having a human spaceflight vehicle. Uh, so there, there is some activity there, but, but they're not, a, they're not a, uh, an organization that is organizing to do scientific exploration of the moon or Mars or anywhere else and, at that and point in time. Refresh my memory on the acronym. It, so it's NACA. National Advisory Co Committee no, okay. for Aeronautics. Okay, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Just an advisory right. committee, not even a formal organization. And uh, you well, it was a it was a real organization, but it had a it had a structure that made it very non bureaucratic. And some people have suggested that the NACA was not as effective as it might have been had there been a top down management structure. But in any event, the, the Soviets did beat, a, beat the U.S. In, in the first lunar flyby, the first lunar impact, and the first uh, photographs of the moon's far side. In January right. of 1959, the USSR's Luna 1 missed its intended impact with the moon and became the first spacecraft to escape the Earth-Moon system. The, you know, they used at that time what they termed impactor spacecraft, which are designed to hit their targets uh, and transmit data back until their destruction. We, we use this at the end of missions frequently now. Uh, but um, then in, in September of 1959, Luna 2, the Luna 2 mission successfully hit the moon's surface, becoming the first man-made object to reach the moon. And this was Luna's only impact success out of six tries from September 58 to September 59. 
how did all this affect what was happening at the new NASA at the early uh, at this new space agency, which, as you mentioned, was only officially declared as such in '58. Very quickly after NASA is established, uh, it does it it does create a science organization, space science organization. Uh, and uh, they bring over a, a, a very well-known scientist uh, from the Naval Research Lab to head that. And he did a good job of sort of organizing scientists to, to um, uh, get them excited about undertaking space science activities, especially probes. And they were really thinking mostly at that time uh, to the moon. Uh, and there were a few other people that became a part of, of NASA very quickly thereafter uh, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which uh, was just in the process of transforming itself from a technological development organization that was really concentrated on rockets to one that was a scientific organization concentrating on planetary science. And the leaders of of JPL, as soon as they arrived at NASA, they began to clamor uh, for space activities. And the first programs that come out of this uh, are things like the Ranger program, which was a moon impactor, uh, and and then other things that started to follow from that point on. And who was the scientist that came over from the from the NRL, the Naval Research Lab? I knew you were going to ask me that, and for the life of me, I cannot remember his name, and I know it as well <laughs> okay. as I know yours. All right, that, that's all right. No, no worries. Okay, why did NASA have some... Oh, wait, 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 I've got it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it was, his name was Homer Newell. Homer Newell, okay. Why did NASA, not, not picking on NASA, but why did NASA have so many launch failures in the first few years of its existence? And to be fair, as I just mentioned, the Soviets also had an incredible number of malfunctions in their early missions. Yeah, everybody did. What was, it, what, was it just a learning curve or, or what? Partly it's a learning curve. I mean, this is hard to do uh, under the best of circumstances. And so it really took uh, some time and effort to sort of develop the technologies necessary. You know, the people who had the worst problem were the, were the military who were trying to build ballistic missiles. I mean, they blew up, they blew up 12 in a row uh, before they got uh, – the first uh, spy satellite into orbit in 1960. Yeah, you know, I, NASA never did anything quite that bad. So how difficult uh, was it to, technically to attempt to launch a spacecraft that would do a lunar flyby? That's well, a big I mean, target. But you it, know, it, I mean, it's called rocket. Uh, you, know, we, you know, we joke about uh, calling this rocket science for a reason. It's hard. Uh, you know, uh, first <laughs> off, you're, you're building technologies that uh, have never been built before. Uh, and they have to operate in an environment that you've never had to operate in before. And they have to be controlled from the ground in ways that had never been done before. Uh, they were using fuels to get the thrusts necessary that had never been used before. And I could go on and on and on. And, and so, you know, NASA developed a system that more or less worked over time. And that required... Um, you know, very exacting specifications for every component that went into the system. And all of those components, by the way, had to talk to each other, work with each other, and function perfectly or the mission does not get accomplished. That is not an easy set of tasks. And, you know, and, that, and then there's the joke that John Glenn and others uh, said, you know, that he was reminded when he was getting ready to launch into space that he was riding on a vehicle that was built by the lowest bidder. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, I remember that, that. those things happen too. Right, right. How, how difficult was it for these early lunar and interplanetary missions to navigate? Uh, I mean, because we look, up, we, we look up and we see the moon, but it's not you had to use a lot of math to get there, even do a, to do a, a flyby. Now, going to the moon's easier than going to any of these other places. Right. But uh, it's relatively close, for one thing. You can see it there, and you, you can't dead reckon it, but, uh, but you can sort of close uh, dead reckon. And, uh, and the reality is that, um, that, you know, they developed armies of, of people who did nothing but the calculations necessary for guidance and control. Right. You know, uh, how often do they have to fire the thruster in what direction uh, to move them in a certain way that will get them to, to rendezvous or come close? 
if you're doing a flyby, you know, you want to come as close as you can without actually hitting it. But, um, uh, but you know, if you miss it by a few thousand miles, it's, you know, that may not be uh, ideal, but it's not the end of the world. Right. And so uh, was your navigation controlled by the ground controllers or did they have rudimentary pre-programming? Early on, they, they mostly did the work from the ground. There might have been a little bit of capability inside the spacecraft to make some course correction. But almost always it was done um, uh, by the ground controllers who, uh, uh, who would communicate with the spacecraft what it was supposed to do. Later on, uh, the spacecraft became more autonomous because they had to. Okay. Um, but that, that comes a little bit later. So how did the uh, Soviets and the Americans differ? and their philosophies or their approach to early <laughs> interplanetary robotic exploration. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I, so, I mean, there's a variety of things that are different. I mean, one of the fundamental things that was very different between the Americans and the Russians was that the Americans uh, really set about to, to develop a program that was stepwise. So we're going to I'll take, we'll take one example, the Ranger program. Uh, you know, the Ranger program is going to be a spacecraft that can go to the moon, that will have an instrument package on it that can take pictures as it's going, that can take measurements and send uh, information, send data back to Earth, will have a, something that you can deploy and that can hopefully, it wasn't necessarily a soft lander, but it was one that wasn't supposed to crash uh, and not be usable. So that's what they tried to do. And then the next one after that is going to do a little bit better and do have more capability and provide more data and and uh, and 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 have an instrument packages package that survives reaching the moon and operates for, you know, a few days or maybe a couple of weeks. And the third one after that does even more. So these are sort of stepwise approaches. Uh, building on what had done pre what had been done previously, and the scientists were involved in this too because they have questions that they want to have answered, and so they build instruments that will help them answer those questions, provide data that will be useful in that type of analysis, and each one is more sophisticated than the one before. Um, the Russians tried to do some of that, but there was theirs were much more one off. You know, we're going to send a spacecraft to the moon. It's going to have a camera on and it's going to take some pictures. The next one's going to do something maybe entirely different. Maybe it's even got the same name, like a Luna designation with a number. But, uh, but it's a totally different vehicle. Mm -hmm. and, and so there was those sorts of differences. The Americans had an approach that they developed very early on that was to uh, basically to remove the spacecraft from any sort of um, debris or uh, dross or extraneous material that might get anywhere near it. So they created clean rooms where they could build these vehicles to, um, uh, to very exact standards that were almost, um, you know, operating room level capability in terms of the cleanliness. And uh, the Russians never did that. They tended to try to build them more hardy, the Americans are, uh, are, are more committed to this, um, to this approach that, that tries to uh, keep extraneous dirt or dust or whatever it was away from the vehicle and, and, uh, and we're more exacting in that way. So uh, that, th those were different philosophies. They both worked. Okay. At least up to a point. You know, I know that in the in later on in human space flight that the Americans had a reputation for having redundant systems for safety's sake. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I don't know if it's true or or apocryphal the, that uh, the Soviets actually had less redundant systems in, in their space architecture. I don't. It, it well, was was that already true. was that already true in in the early days of robotics or or was that simply how they ran things? Uh, with their man program, no, it's 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 true in both cases. Okay. Uh, so so the Americans, the Americans had an advantage that the Russians didn't have, in the sense that uh, they were much more able to shrink the size and weight of their technology. 
they could make smaller machines that could actually do more, which meant that they had the luxury of building more redundant systems. Because, you know, you've got one controller that could do the job if it didn't fail. But since it's small enough and it weighs half what the Russian one did, you could put two in. Uh, so if the first one failed, you still had a second one. The Russians didn't necessarily have the same luxury. So those were different approaches. And partly it was a result of difference of technologies. So, but in, ter- in early 1966, uh, the Soviet Luna 9 mission became the first probe to achieve a soft landing on another planetary body when it landed on the lunar surface, transmitting five black and white stereoscopic circular panoramas, which were the first close-up shots of the lunar surface. The Soviets mm-hmm. achieved two successful soft landings, which were achieved out of 13 attempts. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's, that, that is a high failure rate. That's a high failure rate. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. How difficult was this soft landing for the Soviets? Well, I mean, anytime you undertake something like that, it's difficult. Uh, and, you know, since there's no atmosphere on the moon, you can't use a parachute or anything like that. So you have to do it with a, with a rocket that's firing, which is hard to control. You know, and, and there's a certain level of, you know, out of 15 attempts, I think you said, 13 of them failed? Thir- thir- uh, yeah, out of 15, 13, yep. Okay, so uh, that's not a good track record. And quite frankly, NASA would never have gotten away with that. I mean, they would have pulled the, uh, you know, the Congress would have pulled the plug on that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, you know, the Russians were not operating in a democratic system where there were elected uh, competing branches of government that are trying to do different things. No, actually, and, uh, actually correct. And so myself. they didn't have to have to deal with the politics of this. And by the way, every failure was a secret. Yeah. And we're going to d- discuss the, the politics a bit, a bit later, but uh, let me correct myself the, out of 13 to were successful. So they made 13 attempts oh, at a right. soft 13, landing. 13 attempts, in a, in 11, a, 11 yeah. of which were failures. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I hear you. Congress, uh, they probably would ask you after the third attempt. I, who knows? Then in your uh, 2012 book, uh, in an essay that you wrote exploring the solar system, there's Venus. And you write that uh, in the early 60s, there was a race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union to see who would be the first to place some sort of spacecraft near Venus. And uh, this was not just an opportunity to best the rival in the Cold War, but scientists in both the U.S. and the Soviet Union recognized the attraction of Venus as a near twin or what was thought right. to be a near twin in terms of size, mass, and gravitation. And that's true. But uh, mm-hmm. it also had been suggested at the time that if Venus were covered by water, it might be inhabited by Venusian equivalents of Earth's Cambrian period uh, some right. 500 million years ago. And the same steamy atmosphere could be a possibility. But it was soon learned that this was an impossibility. In fact, Venus was a... <laughs> In my words, an absolute hellhole with uh, surface pressures 95 times that of Earth. I think the initial measurements uh, were 90 times, and now we know it's a bit higher. Uh, With a carbon dioxide-dominated atmosphere and temperatures literally hot enough to melt lead. So is this really the case that in the 1950s and early 60s, the two superpowers thought that Venus might lend itself to either some sort of colonization or even use as a strategic military uh, planetary base of some sort. Well, I mean, obviously, if you think you can do anything there, you're going to figure you're going to figure that some of that might be military. But um, you know, I mean, there's there's a long history in the 20th century of scientists thinking that Venus might harbor some form of life. Uh, and if it harbors some form of life, then maybe there's a possibility that we can go there and engage with it and, and create our own colonies there or whatever. Um, there's a lot of scientists who wouldn't buy into that, but there are those who, who thought that it might be a possibility. And so it, it enters the popular culture as well along the same lines. And, and so you've got a, a long history in science fiction, and you see it in novels and, and, in, and in movies, in the first half of the 20th century that where they're talking about uh, about these possibilities. And it was even stronger in Soviet Union than it was in the United States. There's, there's a lot of science fiction built around going to Venus. Right. 
Um, and it's logical. So, it's a, it's a, it's a, a beautiful planet, you know, that we see every evening and every morning. Uh, well, it's, yeah, it's hard to miss it out there in the sky. It's a, it's a much brighter object than anything else except the moon in the nighttime sky. Right. That you can see with the naked eye. And it does seem like we're kind of going into uh, an era of uh, a renewed interest, scientific interest in Venus. So thankfully, we'll hope, and the technology is catching up. So that hopefully we'll have some new surface landers soon. But anyway, NASA's yeah. uh, Mariner 2 spacecraft was the first uh, successful interplanetary spacecraft. It launched August 27, 62 on an Atlas Agena rocket. And Mariner 2 passed within about 34,000 kilometers or 21,000 miles of Venus, sending back valuable new information about interplanetary space and also the Venusian atmosphere which led to, which kind of quickly led to the conclusion that Venus was probably not very hospitable to life as we know it. But right. after that realization, there was some sort of, and, and we've spoken about this several times uh, in the past, uh, that that you think there was some sort of unspoken yet tacit agreement between the Soviet Union and NASA that Mars exploration would be the purview of the U.S. and Venus would kind of be left to the Soviets for their own. Well, that's. True, yeah. So in talking to some of the Soviet scientists, they um, they talked about some of the informal, and it was very informal, discussions that they had with their NASA colleagues in the early 1960s. And, uh, and you know, and some of those discussions were very candid about what each country could and could not do technologically in terms of planetary science. And so my... Uh, my uh, understanding about this sort of division of the solar system with the Russians concentrating on Venus and the Americans concentrating on Mars is really built upon those really informal discussions. The Soviets felt that they had good rocket capability that could reach Mars readily. Uh, they didn't necessarily feel quite so good about Mars. I'm, I, did I say Mars a moment ago? I meant Venus could reach Venus readily. relatively readily, comfortably. Yeah. Right. Uh, they didn't feel the same way about Mars, and and so based upon that, they just you know, somebody. Well, why, why don't you all concentrate on Venus? We'll concentrate more on Mars. People, we'll publish our papers. Everybody will see the data. And we'll all be better off, and we won't be trying to duplicate efforts. Right. Okay. Well, so, yeah, I mean, sense. it's as simple as that. But but it's not a formal thing at all. It's just a, kind of an informal, uh, which came about from informal discussions at conferences, probably. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So then the, the, Soviet, uh, the Soviet's Venera 3 uh, spacecraft became the first human-made object to impact another planet's surface. Uh, we mentioned the, the Luna... Uh, spacecraft, but that's uh, technically our moon and not a, another planet. So as uh, the Venera, Venera 3 crashed, landed on Venus on March 1st, 1966, but its instruments had failed once it hit the atmosphere. Then uh, later on, uh, the Venera 7's, uh, the USSR's Venera 7 spacecraft failed shortly before landing very close to the surface. It impacted at high speed, survived, but due to a resultant antenna misalignment, its radio signal was very weak, uh, but was detected uh, its um, its temperature tele- telemetry for 23 more minutes before its batteries expired. And thus, in December 1970, Venera 7 became the first human-made probe to transmit data from the surface of Venus. And it confirmed right. that Venus had over 90 Earth atmospheres, as I mentioned, and temperatures are nearly 870 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, right. And as I mentioned, in the last couple of decades, it looks like that uh, Venus is going to become a new uh, target of study. We just had this uh, kind of uh, controversial, provocative uh, paper which uh, detected phosphine, potentially phosphine in the atmosphere. That's been disputed since. That was just in nature. But, um, you know, who knows? I I do personally, and I I don't know how you feel about it, but I do think that... uh, we do need to get back to Venus uh, on the uh, for surface exploration. How? What's your what's your own personal take on on Venus exploration at this point? Well, I, I you know I think it would be very interesting to learn more about this, especially if there is 
any truth at all to the fact that there might be some sort of water uh, droplets uh, that exist there, and there's been some some studies to suggest that that might be the case. Um, that makes a huge difference in terms of whether or not we might find life, and uh, and that and finding life, of course, is one of the fundamental reasons that we want to go to these other planets but that would be but in the atmosphere to be clear uh, because yeah in the atmosphere not necessarily on the surface that's right so uh, by the same token then uh, nasa's mariner 4 mission destroyed belief in abundant martian plant life notes uh, your book uh, exploring the solar system the first image from mariner 4's mars flyby was transmitted in july 65 and it took days to upload back to nasa at JPL, a real-time data translator machine converted Mariner 4 digital image data into numbers printed on strips of paper. So um, right. the, the scientists uh, who were waiting for the data were so anxious uh, to, to look at this image, they literally attached strips side-by-side on a display panel and hand-colored the numbers like a paint-by-numbers picture, and it showed a cratered right. surface that suggested that Mars was less habitable than previously thought. U.S. News and World Report announced that Mars is dead. I actually thought that was Newsweek that did that, but but <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. One of the two. Um, so what about the data analysis and transmission at that time? It was That was a, a big bugaboo, was it not? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons why it took so long to get this this information back from Mars and, and to turn it into something that was visual and, and could be displayed. And so there, there's been a sea change in how we can analyze data simply due to transmission rates from a spacecraft as they orbit a land on their celestial targets. Uh, aside from sheer computing power, what did NASA learn uh, from these early missions that paved the way for more efficient use of the data once it was returned? Well, I mean, obviously, they, uh, you know, just sending a spacecraft out, getting data back. Uh, is a major step forward. Enhancing the capability to do that with every single mission uh, means that there's a learning curve that makes it possible to understand more effectively what um, uh, what it is you're you're seeing and learning and and how you can tweak the technology to do a more effective job in the future. So uh, that, you know that's a big part of this. And so who uh, between the two again? Kind of an unfair question, but. Between the the old Soviet Union and the U.S., who do you think was better at who who learned more exponentially from their space missions? Who who was better equipped to to actually utilize their data? I'm no expert on Soviet space science, but I would say the Americans did probably a better job. But you know, who's to say? I mean, the Russians, you know, the best minds in Russia were as good as anybody in the U.S. So, uh, but they're laboring under a different system. And, and so that may have accounted for some of the differences in which they approach things and how they did things. So are you saying that uh, because the Soviet system did not promote transparency, that that probably uh, uh, hampered the scientific analysis? It could have. Uh, yeah, you know, I, again, I, I think a lot of the scientists did a very good job and tried to do their best. But who knows? I mean, we've run into these kinds of problems in the U.S. as well, where national security considerations have meant that in some cases, the best technologies that might have been flown on a NASA vehicle was not available because the military had it and controlled it. Okay. So and then I suspect the same is true in Russia. So then um, we had a surveyor three, NASA has thir- surveyor three mission successfully landed, but it, it was kind of damaged. It was a, uh, a lander mission, which uh, was to scout out actually uh, potential Apollo landing sites, if I'm not incorrect. Uh, I mean, to make right. sure that that's correct. Because at that time, uh, prior to Apollo, we really uh, NASA did not wasn't really sure whether or not uh, you know how deep the uh, the lunar regolith would be, the dust, uh, you know, would right. would the the limb that actually landed on the lunar surface and uh, would it you know basically be swallowed up by Kind of this right. uh, lunar. Uh, yeah, there were all these. There, there were all of these myths that existed. Right. Uh, they were predicated on some scientists' understanding, and you're talking here about Tommy Gold, and 
what the scientists around him referred to as 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 the gold dust theory. <laughs> and that's Thomas that, Gold. Uh, refresh our memory about about his ideas well, of, uh, well, prior so, to Apollo. So Tom, Tommy Gold was a very good scientist who basically said for eons, and he did quantification of this, the lunar surface has been bombarded by tiny little fragments of whatever. And over the, over the eons, uh, this is built up. And so it is conceivable that uh, any supposedly flat surface, especially flat surface, the mountains are different, may be covered with who knows how much, several feet anyway, of, of you know, very, very tiny, almost fine sand. And, um, but not sand like you would see at a beach, much finer than that, almost like talcum. Mm-hmm. But um, if that's the case, it's conceivable that when uh, the lunar module lands, they can just sink into it, never be heard from again. That idea persisted for some period of time. Now, the surveyor landers had no problem. And so that's a big data point that, that sort of goes against this. But there's a really interesting couple of interchanges between Mission Control and Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong on the moon in 1969 in which, as they're landing, he announces kicking up a little dust now. Right, I remember that. That is a, yep, yep. That is a signal. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, they contact light, and then he gets, uh, when he finally gets out of the spacecraft and gets down onto uh, the landing pad, and he steps off, and he says, very fine powdery dust, not more than like a, an inch thick. That's another data point directly talking a little bit about this concept. But Thomas Gold, uh, re- refresh our memory, he was a planetary scientist. I don't. What was his affiliation at that time? Do you? Do you uh, he was at Cornell. At Cornell. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, he's he was an honest to god, terrific scientist. He, he made a lot of dis- important discoveries. Mm-hmm. But that particular theory, uh, when when that when when you know when he saw data that suggested this. He started raising all kinds of red flags, and, and he should have, quite frankly. Right. He proved to be wrong, which is what science is all about. <laughs> right. But the but the uh, in fairness uh, to him, the the dust is, is still a bugaboo. I mean, it's, it's still going to be a potential bugaboo in colonizing the moon. It has a an electrostatic effect. I mean, you, you know. Right. So uh, well, it it has it has all kinds of difficult challenges in terms of doing anything important on the surface, but it but but you're not going to be swallowed up by it. So anyway, uh, for uh, yeah. the, the surveyor mission has nothing to do with the the regolith, but it did it it did kind of bounce up and down a bit, uh, which caused right. uh, some sort of misalignment and some sort of damage uh, to the camera. The Apollo 12 mission, the second mission to the lunar surface, uh, landed only 600 feet from the Surveyor 3 in 1969, right. and that was intentional. Um, right. But what was the purpose of retrieving the camera? I've forgotten. Uh, they, they actually walked down and, re- and retrieved the camera from the Surveyor, surveyor which is yeah, now— Yeah, and, and, and other pieces came off as well and were brought back. Uh, it, it was mostly to see what happened— you know, that, that uh, spacecraft had been on the lunar surface for almost three years at that point. Mm-hmm. And so what, what had happened, you know, how had being bombarded with cosmic rays and anything else that's out there, uh, just being on the surface for that length of time, what would have happened to components of the vehicle? I mean, obviously they weren't operational anymore, but how did the metal degrade? How did it change? Uh, how did other parts of it change over time those are really important questions right and uh and so by bringing pieces of it back they uh they were able to analyze that uh now there's one of the pieces of the story that i really should relate to to uh to you uh and that is you know this was a this was an a, a a precision landing exercise that was what the purpose was of that particular landing near uh the surveyor spacecraft Pete Conrad and uh, and Alan Bean executed that perfectly. Uh, when I first went to Russia, when I was working for NASA in the early 1990s, and we were starting to negotiate the the uh, international agreements to to do things together in space, ultimately the International Space Station, 
I talked to some of the veterans who were there who had worked on the Soviet moon program in the early 70s. And, uh, and they said, you know, we didn't believe that we were beat in the race to the moon when Apollo 11 landed in the summer of 1969. Is that right? That is right. It could have been a fluke. Maybe you guys just got lucky. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's fair enough. Uh, but when we saw Apollo 12 and the ability to set that spacecraft down wherever they wanted it, we realized we couldn't win. There is no way we'd ever be able to do that. Mm. Even if all of the technology worked and we were able to land, we wouldn't be able to do anything like that. And, and so at some level, I contend that Apollo 12 was really the end of the space race. Because uh, by rote, uh, you know, if we can land within 600 feet of an object on, a, on another planetary body, then uh, our missile technology is pretty damned accurate. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I get you. But um, that doesn't take away anything from the remaining Apollo missions or the Apollo 12. And, in fact, uh, the camera that the astronauts on Apollo 12 brought back from the lunar surface is, is I believe, still on display at the National Air and Space Museum. That's correct. Yes. Okay, so you guys can go and see it. Then you note that it's not all about science. Uh, politics uh, does play a part. And uh, you write in your introduction to the 2012 book, Exploring the Solar System, The History and Science of Planetary Probes, that by 1967, the scientific community had learned a hard lesson about the pragmatic and sometimes brutal politics associated with the execution of big science. How so? Well, um, so one of the things that happened at that point in time was um, the scientific community, I mean, uh, it, it does not speak with one voice. Uh, there are people with different disciplines, different priorities, uh, different scientific objectives, different approaches, uh, and they all want different things. And, and it has been difficult to sort of get that community to coalesce around a single idea uh, to do something. And it's been, it's been uh, you know, uh, knockdown dragouts have resulted from this. You know, do you want to send probes to Venus? Do you want to send them to Mars? Do you want to send them somewhere else? Uh, what are the types of questions you want to have answered? How do you want to go about trying to answer them? Uh, those debates go on all the time. And uh, in 1967, there was the potential of, of undertaking a grand tour of the solar system. And uh, it would be able to, a spacecraft launched in the early 70s would be able to rendezvous with all of the big gas giants in the outer part of the solar system and collect data on each of them. Um, and the proponents of that idea had a really grand approach that was going to cost billions of dollars. And the scientists who were not interested in those kinds of questions were more focused, say, on Mars. Uh, you know, they weren't necessarily excited about that. Well, one of the things that happened was that uh, these competing claims uh, and people advocating them went up to the Capitol Hill and testified to Congress, trying to poo-poo one side and, and, and ballyhoo their own side. And, you know, and, and what it was was a huge fight taking place in public. The result of that was that Congress was saying, oh, we don't know what to do. And the NASA administrator at the time, uh, James Webb, basically got, I mentioned Homer Newell earlier, uh, Homer Newell and a number of these other folks into a room and said, you guys have to sit down and figure this out. What do you want to do? We'll back you, but you have to speak with one voice. And until you do, you're not getting any money. And they canceled everything. Good gosh. Mm. So that was a big that was a big learning curve. So that, they learned a hard lesson there. Right. Yeah. 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 Speak with one voice. Now it's not a, it's not an accident. Uh, the astronomers have been doing this for a number of years. The National Academy of Science every periodically organizes a stakeholders investigation to come up with what they refer to as the, the decadal survey. Here's what we want to do in the next decade. Right. 
And the planetary scientists latched upon that as the method whereby they might resolve these problems. Let's not fight it out in Congress. Let's go to the National Academies and fight it out there. And then when we walk out of the room, we're all going to support whatever it is we've decided. Right. And they've been doing that every when. When they rally around that kind of approach, they can get a lot of what they want. Right. And but then you you also write uh, that uh, the scientists uh, on Capitol Hill, when they were on Capitol Hill, learned that a seven hundred and fifty million dollar program found little opposition at any level. But a two billion dollar project crossed an ill-defined but very real threshold, triggering intense competition for those dollars. Uh, Right. Absolutely. And so what do you kind of uh, characterize what you mean by that? Well, okay. I mean, it, it, it's, it's actually quite simple. I mean, if a project's small enough, not too many people are going to get excited. Now, you know, if it's $700 million or $500 million, whatever the number is, that's still real money. And it's a lot to you and me and probably almost all your listeners. But for a government program, it's not very much. And so you don't have a lot of people attacking it because they want that money for something else. But when you start getting into the billions of dollars, <laughs> then they do. And so trying to hold costs down is always a big deal. Um, obviously, I said a moment ago, speaking with one boy, voice is a big deal. And one of the things that also happens is you get these big sort of flagship programs that cost several billion dollars. And they're the ones that take all the, all the pressure and all of the political investigation, while smaller projects are almost invisible underneath. And that's a plus. So which of the early NASA robotic programs stands out as the most successful or game-changing in your own personal view? Well, I'm much enamored with the uh, Pioneer 10 and 11 uh, that launched in the early 70s to to visit Jupiter and Saturn. Right. I'm much enamored with the Voyager program that ultimately was able to to be turned into the grand tour of, of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Right. And one of those spacecraft is still sending data at the heliopause. If you want to talk about bang for the buck, I think you get it there. And nobody else, by the way, has ever sent probes to the outer solar system. You, only, only NASA. That, that's quite an achievement. But the Mariner program was, uh, was an amazing program as well. I mean, we are still... Uh, using data from the the Mariner 10, which did the flyby of Mercury many years sure. ago. Yeah. How has the whole paradigm, though, of funding, you kind of touched on this, and or planning for these robotic missions changed since the earliest days? Well, I mean, obviously, the, um, uh, the dollar amounts have shifted significantly over time. Now, part of that is a function of inflation, uh, but part of it is also the, that the more capable the spacecraft is, the, the the more, the more it costs. And, um, and so we've seen that sort of shift over time to one that, uh, that, you know, NASA now talks about these flagship programs that are several billion dollars each. We all gulp and that's a lot of money, no question about that. And they darn well better be successful and they better change the nature of our understanding of things. And, and they have in a lot of ways. But, you know, smaller, more focused missions that you can do for a relatively small amount of money. When I say relatively small amount, still a couple hundred million, 300 million maybe. Uh, so that's, again, a lot of money for you and me, but not so much in a program at NASA that's got over $20 billion a year. And doing more of them has been a been a real boon, I think, in a lot of ways. Right. So as, a, as Michael Newfield notes in his uh, book, uh, Space Flight, 27 years after the first V2 uh, 1942 flight, astronauts had su- successfully walked on the moon, which is, you know, pretty incredible uh, within a generation mm-hmm. to go from accrued uh, rocket technology to safely returning humans from the moon, rather. Um, so aside from human space flight, are you uh, encouraged or discouraged by the rate of progress in society's robotic interplanetary exploration and have we squandered opportunities in this realm? Well, you know, it's hard to say you're, they're squandered. Uh, I'm, I'm enormously enamored by what I see happening in, uh, in robotic spaceflight. Uh, you know, in the, in the 1950s, nobody thought these, uh, these vehicles were going to be as capable 
as they have proven to be. In essence, when we send a probe to Mars now, we're sending a scientist, actually several scientists because they're connected, but, and they're very hardy vehicles. Uh, so, you know, Spirit and Opportunity that landed, I think, in 2004, and we're, and one of them was still operating until just a couple of years ago, is a pretty remarkable track record in terms of what it's, what it's resulted. And oh, by the way, they didn't, they were expensive, but they were nothing approaching what a human mission would be. And here's the bottom line. Everybody wants to send humans to Mars. And I do too. I'd love to see that. But the robots are going. They're learning a lot. They're telling us much about that particular planet and how it's evolved over time. And oh, by the way, they're on suicide missions. They're right. not coming home. Right. Yeah. And we don't care. That's fine. That's not the case if you're going to send a human. The first task of any space vehicle that's got a human aboard is to bring that human back alive. Everything else is secondary or maybe even tertiary. Uh, and that's not true when it comes to robots that we send to explore other planets. Today, NASA's uh, critics say, though, that the agency has become too, too uh, bureaucratic, that it lacks the ability to mount missions quickly. And indeed, the, the James Webb Space Telescope uh, has seen its share of delays. Are, are these fair criticisms? You know, you can always criticize any organization for not doing things as quickly as you would like. I can say the same thing about Elon Musk and SpaceX. I can say the same thing about any other space agency. I can say it about anything that you want to see. But the one thing I would say about about all of these space activities, you can't just drop your hat and then do it. It, it, it doesn't work like that. It takes a, uh, the coordinated effort of thousands of people and, might I add, millions of dollars uh, to make this possibility, to make it a reality. And uh, when you try to do it on the shoestring, it does not work. The Lunar X Prize, in, in which you had some teams who were, uh, for a $20 million prize, were supposed to make a soft landing on the moon. Nobody won that prize. Nobody could do it. They were undercapitalized, and they had insufficient brain power and capability to do it. Not that they were anybody associated with was stupid or anything, but they just didn't have enough people uh, to, make it, to make it real. But the uh, the satellite technology is shrinking. We now have the cube sats and the small sats. Well, and you can shrink the size of the technology, <laughs> and in, in the process, you can achieve some some uh, reductions in cost. But you still have to launch this stuff, right. and it still costs. You know, a launch is still thirty million dollars for for a, even a small payload. So, what drew you to aerospace history? <laughs> Pure luck. Uh, by, by accident, I was trained in the history of the American West, 19th century American West, especially religion in the West, uh, and, and for my Ph.D. I took a job working for the Air Force as a civilian historian in 1982 after I finished my Ph.D., and I realized without having any knowledge of it, about it beforehand, this airplane stuff was pretty interesting, and at that point it was airplane stuff. So I worked in that area for a few years, and in 1990 I saw an advertisement. And in those days, it was just a magazine advertisement that NASA was looking for the chief historian. So I applied. Lo and behold, I was hired. And sometimes I wonder, you know, serendipitous in a lot of ways, but it was sort of the job I was, I was uh, really uh, delighted to do. And, and I've had the honor of doing for a number of years. Well, you've always been a great uh, source uh, for, for me and my articles over the years and, and, uh, I think you're well, very well suited to this role, so I appreciate that. So final uh, question. I mean, obviously you're fascinated by space. We're, I think we're probably both uh, uh, of the Apollo era, uh, right. watching it all in real time. So what goes through your own head when you look up into the heavens on a clear night? Uh, do you, are, you, are you more likely to think about the satellite technology that's overhead or the stars themselves? A little of both. I mean, you know, you look up in the nighttime sky and the first thing you see, of course, is the moon and, and think about what it might be like to go there, uh, knowing that we have been there uh, and that we will go back and that we will probably create a research station there. And I'd like to see that before I'm gone, to be perfectly honest. It's totally doable. Uh, it will require an investment. I think the place would look a lot like Antarctica. You'd cycle scientists in and out. But, uh, but it can be done. 
And I'd really like to see that. Uh, so, I, you know, I think about things like that. I think about things like um, the satellites that are in orbit and how they've changed our lives. And none of us want to live without those. You know, global instantaneous telecommunications is a satellite phenomenon. It didn't exist before uh, we had communication satellites in orbit. I run into kids every day who can't read a map because all they've ever done is look at GPS. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, I, 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 can, I can think that that might be, you know, maybe they should learn to run, read a paper map. But be that as it may, uh, that capability has made my life so much easier, too. Right. And this conversation wouldn't be possible very likely without, uh, without the satellite. We may be talking over a satellite right now. Right. I, we don't know. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. So, Roger, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or on email to, to comment or to learn more? Sure. I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's at Lanius R, L-A-U-N-I-U-S-R. You know, you can go to my, my blog, Roger Lanius's blog. It's got a very, a very unusual name. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and anybody can contact me through those. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Roger Lanius, thanks for helping us all get a better handle on our earliest robotic space heritage. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>